Welcome to the Online for Authors podcast. I'm the founder, Jennifer Palmer. Today I'm pleased to welcome Terry M. Brown as our guest host. Terry is an author herself and is considering if a podcast of her own is a fit for her. Until then, we're happy to have her with us. Terry's guest is a former physician and an author of Cold War spy thrillers who got the bug for writing in seventh grade. His English teacher gave the class an assignment to write a short story on any subject. William Maz was born in Bucharest, Romania, of Greek parents and immigrated to the U.S. as a child. During his high school and undergraduate years, he developed a passion for writing fiction. William divides his time between homes in Pennsylvania and New York City and is now writing full-time. His mission is to use fiction writing to ask some of the larger questions that interest people everywhere. How does the world function? What is the best way to spend our lives? And why do people and countries do what they do? And the ultimate question, is there something more than this life? Hi, we'd love to welcome William Maz to Online for Authors. He's written The Bucharest Legacy. Thank you so much for being with us today. It's great. Thank you for having me. Yeah, so why don't you give our listeners just a really quick summary as to what The Bucharest Legacy is about? Well, thank you. The Bucharest Legacy is a sequel, but it's a standalone sequel to The Bucharest Dossier, which came out last year. The Bucharest Legacy just came out a couple of months ago. The first book is about a CIA agent named Bill Heflin, who is tasked to go to Bucharest, Romania, in December of 89, just before the Romanian Revolution starts. And he is a unique agent that he has a KGB mole named Boris that seems to be a puppeteer in his life, knows everything about the revolution before it starts and about Heflin's life. The book is uh, like a matryoshka doll, a love story inside of a spy thriller, inside of a historical novel. And the history is very accurate in terms of what happened in the revolution. If you go to Romania today, they still don't know whether this was a revolution or a coup Mm d'etat. And I give the answer um, to that in in my book, uh, based on all the facts that I've gathered. Um, The second book takes place three years after the revolution in 1993. Uh, It starts out with uh, Heflin having to exfiltrate a KGB defector from Bucharest, who turns out has a very important story to tell. He divulges that there is a mole inside the KG, inside the CIA, and that the handler of the mole is none other than Boris. What that does is it puts the CIA's hair on on fire because that means that all these years, Boris has been feeding them false intelligence. And not only that, but if he's running a mole, Heflin is the prime suspect. Right. Now, Heflin's boss doesn't believe that is the case. He trusts Heflin. So he gives him a chance to find Boris and clear his name. And when he goes to Bucharest, where Boris was last seen, um, 
he finds that the KGB is also after Boris. Not only that, but there is a whole new class of people, very wealthy oligarchs, who are also after Boris for different reasons. What nobody knows, and what only Heflin knows, is that Boris has been dead for over a year. So I divulged that at the beginning of the novel, right. so it's not a spoiler. So uh, <clears throat> what I wanted to do with the second book is depict um, through the spy thriller genre, which allows you to do a lot of things while keeping the action and the pace going quickly. Mm -hmm. It allows you to depict a part of history and, and uh, show people what it was like. In this case, uh, as in most of the other communist countries, by the way, a new class of oligarchs was formed. And I try to show how they were formed and what they were involved in, which I hope we can discuss. Because Absolutely. It, yeah, because it is very, uh, you know, up to date right now with the oligarchs in Russia. But, you know, the point I want to make is that the Russia is not unique. There are oligarchs mm -hmm. in almost all of the former communist states. Exactly. What prompted you to write about Romania, the oligarchs, all that's going on. What What is it that is your connection with this? Well, I was uh, born in Romania, like the character mm -hmm. of Greek parents who had okay. emigrated to Romania while Romania was a uh, democracy with a king between the First and Second World War. And at that time, Romania was quite wealthy. It had oil. The earth was very fertile. It was the breadbasket of the area. And there was a lot of industry and so forth. Poor Greeks, like my grandparents, went there to start restaurants, like poor Greeks do everywhere. <laughs> so uh, <clears throat> that's, uh, and then my parents met there, um, and then um, they couldn't leave. After World War II, uh, Romania became communist, mm -hmm. and uh, because it was invaded by the Russians. And um, my brother and I were born there, and we couldn't uh, leave for decades until for some reason we're allowed to we uh lived in a refugee camp for two and a half years uh in athens in uh a restored um, military compound where with an outdoor toilet and everything else and then came to the united states my father's a doctor they needed doctors so that's how we were allowed in very very interesting there's a little bit of you in the character some of the things you're talking about, I kind yeah. of see some connections there. Well, this brings up the, 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 the question of how much of your own story do you tell? Uh, it's not a memoir by any right. means. So you use little bits and pieces uh, that fit your story. So I went to Harvard, but I was never approached by the CIA. <laughs> there was a Pusha, a little girl that... Um, I left behind when I was six, but everything else is fiction. I never saw her again. Right. So you start using uh, parts. I mean, in Romania, I went back maybe a dozen times over 15-year period. I saw the, I mean, I have a lot of relatives there. So I saw the, uh, the lives they were leading under Ceausescu and the Ceausescu regime at the communism 
the food lines, the uh, which I describe a lot more in, in the first book, the uh, Securitate, which is the uh, intelligence agency mm -hmm. of the Romanians, how they were uh, spying on everybody. I'm sure I was spied upon. Uh, my relatives were questioned after I left regarding what we talked about. I'm sure I have a dossier somewhere um, because they haven't released them, at least not all of them. And I wanted to show uh, this part of history, which hasn't been described in fiction. There are a couple of history books about the revolution, um, but I wanted, I think a lot of Americans um, don't know much about it. And they don't know where Romania is. It's right next to Ukraine, by the mm -hmm. way. It was, before communism, a very uh, wealthy and a country that produced a lot of uh, uh, writers, UNESCO and others. And uh, so um, it really is uh, a crime that, you know, 40 years of its history was lost to. Uh, because you wanted to write about Romania and this portion of, of their history, what prompted you to kind of go into the spy thriller genre as opposed to maybe just a straight historical fiction or just a straight love story or a straight, you know, you kind of did that combination, which I loved. I mean, I really loved the book. I'm curious what, what pushed you that way versus something else. Well, first of all, I'm a Jean Le Carré lover and love spy novels in okay. general, but not the, uh, not the Mission Impossible type uh, where there's a ticking bomb and you have to stop it before it reaches zero or there's a virus you have to stop. That's one end of the uh, right. spectrum, right? The other end is Jean Le Carré. My books are close to the Jean Le Carré end, although they have a lot more uh, action than his uh, books do, but it's mostly a thinking person's um, book. You know, you want to find the puzzle. You want to find... Right the answers and you don't and you think you have it and then and then you don't, <laughs> and then you don't. <laughs> right right i love that do you do you personally read any other genres or do you pretty much stick to just reading spy thrillers oh no i started out um i mean i wanted to be a writer since i was in seventh grade mrs garbett's class english class where she asked us to write a short story i did and the class stood up and applauded and i was hooked <laughs> I love writing, and I survived medicine um, by writing every night, you know, trying to write short stories. I wrote my first novel when I was in medical school, believe it or not. I didn't have enough to do, right? Right, uh, right. <laughs> but it saved my life, really. It um, uh, gave me an outlet, and it made me think about other more important things than my grades or whatever, although... They were good. I'm not saying they were very good. I actually graduated magna cum laude from Harvard, but still, you know, uh, it's all a rat race that I wanted to have a little, you know, sacred time at the end of every evening where I could write my thoughts. What was for you? Yeah. Wonderful. Prior to these books coming out, these these two, did you have anything else published prior to this? No, I know. Okay. I was trying to 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 write while I was uh, studying medicine, while I was practicing medicine, um, that it's just uh, isn't enough time. The book right. I finished um, in medical school, I finally got it to Knopf with an agent in while I was a resident. Knopf loved it, 
but they wanted me to change practically the whole ending. And I said to them, look, I'm, I'm awake 36 hours a day. I cannot think. I cannot write for the next three years. Right. And that was that, the end. That was that. Yeah. So what then prompted you to finally decide now's the time? You've wanted to do it since seventh grade, and you're obviously not seventh grade anymore. So what? why now? I decided, well, during my practice, practicing years, I was taking a lot of courses with Gordon Lish. I took a course for one year. I don't know if people know who Gordon Lish was, but he was a famous editor who discovered several actors. He used to have uh, private um, lessons for six hours straight once a week. Wow in a private apartment. I mean, you could write a whole novel about that. So when I was learning the craft, you know, mm -hmm. as they say. And uh, again, when you're practicing, it's just like medical school. You don't have a heck of a lot of time. A time, right? Yeah. Right. So finally, in when I was turned 54, I decided, you know, I'm either going to do it now or never. So I left medicine. I don't have any children. I don't have to pay for their college. So <laughs> I, uh, <laughs> I uh, decided to become a full-time writer. Fantastic. And are you are you happy that you did? Was I it a good decision for you? It's the best decision uh, I ever made. You know, it's um, I'm writing every day for six or eight hours, and I mm -hmm. love it. Fantastic. And, yeah. You wanted to talk a little bit about this new class of people that, that kind of sprung yeah. up in Romania. Let's do that. What what do you want these listeners to understand? First of all, let's define what an oligarch is. Mm -hmm. The term goes back all the way to Aristotle. An, an oligarch is not just a wealthy person. Bill Gates would not be considered an oligarch. Okay. An oligarch is a wealthy person whose wealth depends on the king or the leader. Okay. okay. So we've had oligarchs throughout Western history. They weren't called that. They were called earls and dukes and barons. And they were all part of the king's network that kept him in power. What did the king do? Well, if there was a political ally or if there was a great general or a valiant warrior, he would give him a piece of land and would give him a title. And they say, okay, now this is called Essex and you are an earl, you're the Earl of Essex. And in return, he would get loyalty and he would get powerful people who had skin in the game, skin in his game, meaning, mm -hmm they made it sure that he remained in power because otherwise they would lose their wealth and maybe their lives. So that was a way for the kings to prop themselves up. Now, believe it or not, even during communism, there was an oligarch system of sorts. Um, everything done during the communist regimes, all the apparatchiks who worked for the government were corrupt. They stole from the government coffers, okay? Whether they stole a little from the small guy in a teller, you know, a teller in a window, or whether it was uh, a minister of defense, they stole from the government. The ministers mm -hmm. stole huge amounts and they had their own offshore accounts. 
The biggest thief of all was Ceausescu, the leader himself, who had over a billion dollars um, estimated in offshore accounts, which was never found, by the way. And I have uh, a solution to that puzzle. You do. <laughs> you know, one of the things you learn about uh, writing as you go into it is if you're going to write a historical novel, there are gaps in history. Exactly. And, and that's, that's where, where that's where the, the fiction writer. part gets to come that's in, right? right? That's where the yeah. writer steps in. Right. So right. there was a gap in how the revolution started. I stepped into that one. There was a gap about Ceausescu's money. I provided that answer. And there's nobody around who can prove me wrong. <laughs> <laughs> you know, um, so I'm a, I'm a historical fiction author as well. And I firmly believe that the history that you can know in a historical fiction needs to be as accurate as possible. Yes, absolutely. And I've but done- that my characters who are made up, they're mine, they get to do what they want as long as it fits the right. historical background that's that they're absolutely in. Absolutely right. So, so that's what uh, that's that was that has been my mantra also. Uh, I have real characters in the first mm-hmm. book and a couple of them in the second. Uh, for instance, there's a general, Stankulescu, who was eventually, uh, before Ceausescu fell, became the uh, defense minister. Mm-hmm. Well, after my research, I realized that Stankulescu was a CIA asset since 1985 or 86, I think it was. He was recruited in East Germany while he was attending a conference. Okay, so you start putting these things together and uh, you realize that there's another story behind the story. There was another general who was a KGB asset who, after the revolution, uh, confirmed that uh, Gorbachev had planned on doing a coup for several years. He just never decided before the revolution. So there are a lot of things in history that, you know, in your research that allows you to actually uh, enhance your plot, enhance your book just from doing the research. So let me go back to the oligarchs. So during Ceausescu's time, all these oligarchs stole. The Securitate, who was, which was the uh, dreaded secret police, had dossiers on all of them. You know, the Stasi, which was the East German secret police, when the Germanys united, they found 111 kilometers of floor-to-ceiling dossiers on all their citizens, millions of them. Wow. So the Securitate in Romania, I'm sure, had at least as many because the population was greater. Ceausescu knew that all his minions were stealing, but he wanted it that way. He was creating his own entourage of oligarchs because his fate depended on them and their fate depended, depended on, on him. Yeah. Right. Okay. When did the new oligarchs form? Romania and all the other countries turned from communism to capitalism. The people in charge were still former communists. The leader exactly. who came after Ceausescu was Iliescu, was used to be his propaganda chief. And they had to uh, privatize all of their state-owned companies, mines, banks, chemical factories, everything. During this privatization process, the whole system became very corrupt because they were supposed to do it in a democratic system. 
people are supposed to get papers uh, reflecting the number of stocks, you know, they had. Right. And that never happened. All of these things ended up in the hands of a few. Then you ask, who are, who are these few? It turns out that they're all either present or former members of the Securitate itself. And why is that? Because of those dossiers. That's why I call the first book, The Bucharest Dossier. Everything in communist countries is based on your dossier, where all your information lies. Well, the Securitate had dossiers full of damning information, people stealing, all throughout the communist years. They used that to blackmail all the parliamentarians, the judges, everybody, so they can get what they wanted. And not only that, they also gave them kickbacks. They made them secret shareholders in the new companies and so forth. Some people have the idea that these oligarchs were somehow smarter than the government and stole these things. No, it was a symbiotic relationship. They were mm -hmm. all in on it. Yeah. And they yeah. all became wealthy uh, from it. And they continued to be, I mean, they continued to run the country. Uh, there is a quote by a Securitate agent who said, if Iliescu wins the next election, our job will be completed meaning they will have gotten their hands on everything that they wanted. And he said, after that, it doesn't matter who is in power. We would control the country. And they do now. They control, you know, most of the big industries, and most of them are faceless. These are all LLCs in, uh, registered in Liechtenstein and Luxembourg, and nobody knows who actually owns them. Right. So... That's how the oligarchs were formed. And this happened everywhere. They happened in Bulgaria and Albania. It happened uh, except for places like East Germany, which didn't have a chance to do that because it was immediately joined with West Germany. Mm -hmm. uh, Poland uh, wanted to be better. They went through a very quick turnover to, to capitalism. But now uh, Poland is creating its own oligarchs. Um, and here's the other, here's the thing I was trying to say. Oligarchs, like I said before, it's not just part of communism. They existed throughout history. And there are people presently in power who have created their own system. For instance, in Turkey, uh, Erdogan has, has been in power for 20 years. Well, how? Well, it's, you know, it's been known that he's been give, giving uh, no-bid uh, contracts to all of his friends and right. relatives, right? And it's been shown now with the uh, tremors where all these houses fell that these people not only got no-bid contracts, but they stole from them and created subpar structures that fell with the tremors. And also in Hungary, there you have a system they call an illiberal democracy. Viktor Orban is the leader who um, says outright, I'm creating oligarchs because I want capitalism to remain. I want people in, who are powerful to keep capitalism going. So his way of doing that is by creating a system of oligarchs, by the way, which is not such a stupid idea because the part of the book that I'm that I'm explaining at the end is uh, something about how the Romanian oligarchs were formed. Fantastic. That was really like that's a that's a good lesson because I think a lot of like you said 
Americans tend to know American history, maybe a little bit of English history. And there's a lot of things that, that we don't know. I wrote a book about Ukraine starting in the 1970s and, and going forward. Uh-huh. And a lot of, of the same kinds of things, this idea that, you know, just because communism falls doesn't mean immediately you get a democracy that looks anything like a Western democracy, because who can go into power? The only people that are going to go into power are those who used to be in power. And and they don't change their mindset just because you changed the name to democracy. You know, it's, it's they're going to do what they've always done with a different name. So, well, I mean, if you look at the list of the most corrupt countries in Europe, these former communist states are always at the bottom. Okay, they're at the bottom because they retained their communist way of thinking. Uh, To this day, you can't get much done in these countries without the bakshish, it's called the bribe. Right. It's a Turkish word because the Turks invaded for 400 years. And so they have a lot of Turkish words. So the bakshish, you know, you want anything done by a government official, you have to bribe them. And so Ukraine was, for instance, one of the most corrupt countries uh, before uh, the war, before mm-hmm. the invasion. And in fact, recently he had to get rid of his defense minister because of corruption. Exactly. You know, what kind of a patriot is that guy when he's uh, stealing uh, money from the Defense Department. And by the way, they think, the analysts at the CIA think, that the reason Russia finds itself so weak militarily is because the military generals and all those guys have been stealing from the military budget and they're creating villas in Monte Carlo and, and yachts. Uh, it's a hollow army. Right, right. And, My husband is a, yeah. a 25-year military veteran. Mm. And he talks about that all the time. He says, you know, they, they're they being told, yes, all that money that you sent to build tanks, et cetera. But what you're actually seeing are tanks that don't run and, and et cetera, because that money has been used Absolutely. by the people who were supposed to be turning it over. So, And there's also, also the idea that a tyrant puts weight on loyalty not on competence. So a lot of these people who are loyal are not necessarily the most competent generals or the most competent uh, bureaucrats, you know, and we've seen this in our own, in our own politics where loyalty is, is, um, is prized more than competence. And and that is very tragic because you can, uh, I mean, you can see what's happening in Russia, you know, they, they don't produce anything in Russia worth buying other than oil. It's like John McCain used to call, you know, a gas station with atomic bombs. That's what Russia is. It's 80% <laughs> of its, uh, of its uh, income comes from fossil exactly. fuels yeah, right. and natural right. resources. So there's no apples in, in uh, Russia. There's no Microsofts. Um, exactly. You know. So I wanted also to show people that Uh, The Cold War never left, okay? Everybody for the past 30 years, all the propeller heads on television have been telling us the Cold War is over. And I've been telling them, no, it is not. It is simply dormant. Now they're saying, oh, the Cold War is back. And they're wrong. (laughs) And William says, no, it never left. (laughs) (laughs) 
<laughs> right, right. And I'm trying exactly. to remind people what the Cold War was like, what communism was like, because again, you have idiots uh, who know nothing. These are armchair communists who know nothing about communism. They, they used to be actors and writers in Hollywood, you know, in the 50s with the McCarthy mm -hmm. era that were communists. They know nothing about communism, right. what life was like under, they read Marx. And you know, if you read Marx, it sounds pretty good. All for one, one for right. all. You know, right. you give what you can, you receive what you need. It's yeah. it's very pretty on paper, but it yeah. doesn't it doesn't work out that way yeah. because people, there are people in power who are greedy and yeah. the all for one and one for all never never works out it's it turns out to be all for me and you get nothing and that's well, just what happens it's 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 too much human, human nature. nature that's right you can't change human nature and what right. happened with the uh industries in romania i told you it was a breadbasket of uh, of the area once they made collective farms they took away the private farms and put everybody on collective farms nobody worked right why am i going to work for the government you know blah 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 I'm going to get the same thing whether I work or not. And exactly, because communism yeah. guaranteed you a job for life. Right. It couldn't fire you. Nobody worked. They worked half days and they were drunk half the time. And so uh, production went whoa, downhill, both in the farms and in everything else. How could they guarantee everybody a job? Well, because they overstaffed everything. Okay, so when the privatization came and these companies had to become profitable, they fired half the staff. Right. So Romania, the first several years, three, four, five years after the revolution, had a 45% unemployment rate. People never heard of an unemployment. I mean, they never got used to, you know, they were never used to looking for a job. Right. Or having no job. It was a very tumultuous period. In fact, some people wanted to go back to the communist days. They would say, well, it was a miserable job, but at least it was a job. Exactly. You know? In a sense, you could make the argument, though I don't agree with it, that the oligarchs provided a stability. They provided companies, for instance, that became efficient and produced something. They, they brought in investments from the West and so forth. And they always compare themselves to the Rockefellers and the Carnegies of our period. They say, oh, those guys didn't steal? You got to be kidding me. You know, of course they did one way or another. Today you have your, you know, your people giving uh, legal bribes to your politicians through campaign exactly. contributions. So how is that different? And they have a point. Uh, but there it is. it was and continues to be brazen. I mean, they right. just, it's just uh, money laundering and extortion. You know, it's not any, there's no subtlety to it. <laughs> I'm curious, you, when you finished book number two, yes. you did so in a way that I firmly believe a book number three is, is going to happen. Is that correct? It's correct. I'm, uh, yeah. I'm working on it right now. And yeah. it's, uh, I will give you a hint. It okay. doesn't just take place in Romania, but in Russia. Okay. All right. Do you have a name for it yet? Not yet. Okay. Not yet. <laughs> yeah, I was just curious because when it ended, I knew it was like, oh, yeah, he's left this open so much for another one. How 
Do you have any idea in your mind how long you want this series? Is it going to be three? Is it going to be six? Do you have? It all depends. It all depends on a lot of things. My publisher, mm-hmm. <laughs> how successful they are. I got a, a movie option contract now. Ooh, how exciting is that? And guess who it is with? It was Cody Gifford, Kathy Lee Gifford's son. Wow. He has, he has become a uh, producer now. And so he loved the book. He came to us. And um, so I, I was very happy about it. He bought the series. He says, I want at least three because I want to make, I want to sell it as a kind of a born identity or mission right. impossible right. type of thing, right? Right. So we'll see if it ever gets done. I mean, you know how it is. Right, uh, right. Companies buy scripts all the time and and only half of them are being made. But uh, Cody just uh, emailed me saying the script is uh, is done. So how exciting. Yeah, that is wow. That's really fabulous. That I mean, see me on the on the red carpet, you know, when the movie opens. I could say I knew him when. (laughs) (laughs) No, I think that's wonderful. So, do you have any idea when this third book is going to come out? I would think probably. Well, it's not finished yet, and it takes a year from the time it's finished. So it'll be a year and a half at least. Okay. Okay, wonderful. Do you have any other ideas for writing? Like, oh, have you have you considered other other yes, avenues? Yeah. The other half of me is the scientific medical medical. Half. I want. I was going to ask that because right. there's a lot of those like like medical thriller type. Would you do a thriller again and do the medical thriller? Is that kind of what you'd be thinking? I one has already been written. Fantastic. Uh, one of the books I wrote before I did the Bucharest dossier is a book that my agent is uh, hopefully going to try to publish over the next few months, try to sell within the next few months. Right. It'll right. come out um, in the next few months. But um, yeah, it is a Michael Crichton type of uh, scientific medical thriller. It's not yeah. about people dying in a hospital. It's a, it's a higher idea than that. It's, uh, but I won't tell you about it. Okay. Actually. That's all right. That's all right. I know you can't, you can't divulge everything, but no. yeah, when you said that, that you had been a doctor, I thought that's surprising that you went with the spy and not with the medical because you obviously well, would have a lot of the medical knowledge to. Well, let me tell you quickly how that happened. I'll yeah. only take a minute. It's, it started out as a love story. Okay. Mm-hmm. Uh, the young man finding his love uh, that he left 20 years ago. Right. Then I'm asking myself, this is how a book is written, by the way. I'm asking myself, well, how does that happen? Why has he waited 20 years? And why is he going back now? Well, what if I put them during the revolution? Because he's afraid of what might happen to her, whatever. And then I think, well, why would he be stupid enough to go back during a revolution? I mean, really? Ah, well, he's got to be a CIA agent. He's wanted there by somebody who well he's got to have an asset and this is how it grows exactly no i know exactly what you mean because i wrote sunflowers beneath the snow that's about three generations of ukrainian women and i knew my end because it is based on a true story this this end is just a little piece of someone's story but i needed to create something to get there and that's the same thing i did was well how would they have ever gotten here 
to do that? Well, then they had to have been there, but what made them go from there to here? Well, let's see, it must have been. And so you do that same thing. And I love that. That is the beauty of writing for me. You know, they always ask me, are you a pantser or are you an outliner? And the people mm -hmm. who don't know, a pantser is a writer who lives by the seat of their pants. And because they don't know what they're writing about when they start writing. I'm not like that. Although Stephen King says he is, I don't believe a word he says. He, he does all the planning in his, in his head. What I do is I know certain scenes are going to be in the book. I don't know the ending necessarily. Okay. I mean, in the revolution, you know, the ending that he, that the church right. shot, but, uh, by the way, you can see the trial and the execution of Ceausescu on YouTube. Wow. You, you can find a lot of things. You sure? Um, yeah. Yeah. It's amazing. So, you know, a few things, you know, the ending, maybe, you know, maybe the climax and a few other scenes, but you don't know how you're going to get there. Right. And right. in the book, you don't just have one plot. I have three. Right. And these, the love story, the spy story and the revolution story, these three have to be intertwined. You can't just float them on their own. So these right. characters intertwine. And one of the things I learned early in my writing courses, you know, you have a graph where in the second act, it's all based on a three act uh, play by Aristotle. In the second act, when the, the protagonist starts meeting obstacles, each obstacle has to be bigger than the last one. And there's a graph uh, of tension where they overcome the first obstacle, tension comes down, there's a trough. That's where you put the, the, the peaks of the second plot so that there is excitement there, but not from the first plot. There's excitement right. from the second plot. And so you time your peaks to be in the troughs of the first plot. And then the same thing with the third plot. Wherever there's a little dead time, that's where you put the peaks of the third plot. And so you learn a lot from taking courses from different people. So Yeah, you definitely do. You obviously did a ton of research. Oh, absolutely. I mean, you can't have written what you wrote without doing research. Do you enjoy that aspect of the writing as well? I love it. First of yeah. all, I could research by interviewing people because I was there uh, two months before the revolution and I was there four months after the revolution. And I had been there for years before uh, visiting. But uh, a lot of the revolution research had to be, you know, um, online. So I've, mm -hmm. I've probably read hundreds of papers written about it articles two books and after a while you you get such granular detail that you know you can't put it all in the exactly. book exactly so yeah. you have to pick which okay. which things are going to make your book do what you need your book to do well, exactly they have to help the book okay right. in the end your loyalty is to the book but you you should never make the facts wrong but how many facts you include and which ones they are chosen to help your book. So I had to show some of, uh, you know, the, the killing and so forth. But this is not a book about violence. This is a book about, about showing how the people live, about right. showing the craft and the, uh, the, the thinking behind what uh, CIA agents actually do. You know, you talk to a CIA agent, they said, I never carry a gun. The time I need to carry a gun, it means my mission is blown and I have to get out of there. Right. Right. <laughs> you know, so it is not 
how most CIA agents uh, uh, function. So all of the stuff you see in the movies. There is a unit now in the CIA, a couple of units that are black units that have been brought uh, on board after the Cold War when the um, terrorist uh, era came. And they are military units inside the CIA, which do go and assassinate terrorists, okay? Or they help, or they combine with the Green Berets or, or other people to, to do that. But that's not what a spy is. A spy is there to, to run his assets and get information. Right. You know? And that's what... That's and that's what, rarely done with a gun. <laughs> right, exactly. When the gun is there, it means... I'm blown. I got 24 hours to get out of here. Right, right. Well, I love that you love research. I have a hashtag called research junkie. And ah. that's what I call myself because I just, I love delving in. And I know that 95% of what I learn is never going into anything that I write, but it helps me oh, yeah. pick and choose those things that are going to elevate my book or move me forward in a way that that will help people maybe see something they wouldn't have known otherwise. And I love it when I'm able to find a piece of information that that ties everything together for me. It's like, that's what I've been looking for. That's the reason that they could do this. Or, or you know, that's how I'm going to get him from Ukraine right. to England. Or that's how, you know, and and, and then it works. And, and then you have yeah. an aha moment. Or you get yeah. a rush of adrenaline or whatever you have. Because it's, it's a beautiful moment. And not only that, but the more you know about that whole period of whatever period you're writing about, the more it comes out subconsciously in your writing and in your exactly. dialogue and you know it seeps through that you are you have deep knowledge of what you're writing about exactly and so it helps to do a lot of great research it's my favorite well it's not my favorite but it's it's a favorite part of writing is doing the research I tell people that I really enjoy doing historical fiction because yeah. it it merges the two things I love the most which is research and writing and yeah. I, you know, I get to do both of them. And like I said, I just do, I get a, a real charge out of finding those, those facts that are going to really move the story along. So yeah, this is, this is a lot of fun talking to someone else who understands that. Well, the danger is, and I've fallen into this, that you love your research so much that you never start writing. Exactly. You have to, you, <laughs> I, I tend to, people have asked me like, well, how do you do your research? I do some before I start writing. And then I do research throughout as right. I'm writing because right. I now need to know something. I've gotten to a point where I now need to figure out how am I moving. And so yeah. I do a little more research. And as soon as I know, I back off the research and I start writing again. Because like you said, you can jump down rabbit holes yeah. and come up three years later and realize you've not done anything but research. So. <laughs> Well, I always say I do research like the CIA functions on a need-to-know basis. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> uh, because, you know, I wanted to know what gun did they use, did the KGB use in the 1980s? Well, you can actually find out online. It was the Makarov. I mean, what was the weather like in December of 89 exactly. in Bucharest? You can exactly. find that out. I, I mean, know. I Isn't mean, it awesome? It is. Yeah. So I have a... a I think it's 1990 in my book where it's like one of the worst winters in Ukraine. And 
And I used that information to explain what was happening and, yeah. and to really show the depths of depravity that were going yeah. on at that point, right? Yeah. But I could do it because I looked up, what is the temperature, you know, in, in January? And it was like, oh my gosh, we can use this. You know, you, you read this little, this little blip coldest winter in you know 60 years right. or whatever and it was like oh i can use that That's right. That's <laughs> i feel really blessed to be in an age where you have this online ability to do this research where you can find things like yeah. what was the temperature in january of you know 1989 in well, you name the country yeah. and you know kafka wrote america without ever having been to america and he got some things wrong there. Well, right. I can write about Russia without ever having gone to Russia because exactly. it's all in front of me on film and, and uh, newspapers. I mean, I read a lot of articles in Romanian because I can speak the language. English is my third language, in fact. Wow. And uh, <clears throat> Romanian, then Greek, then English. I read all these Romanian descriptions of the people killed in right. the town of Timisoara, where the Romanian, where the revolution started, and the tanks rolling over them, and all of this stuff, which is uh, very tragic. And over exactly. two thousand people died. Research is great, but then you stop, and then you throw away ninety percent of it, probably. <laughs> but but like you said, you you, you don't, don't necessarily put it in the book, but it does yeah. seep out. Yeah because it showed you're you're able to use what you know to write something very realistic because yeah. even if you don't state it specifically your character is now living it and and people see that through their eyes i love that one of the things that i noticed is you have a wide vocabulary i had to look up a few words which is great i absolutely love that do you consider yourself a lover of words i mean if you speak three languages i'm assuming that you that you love yes, language. Well, that's right, because Romanian is the closest to Latin, sometimes even closer than Italian, because the okay. Romans were the original invaders of Romanian. The language is mostly Roman, romantic language. It is an easy language to learn. There aren't the uh, difficult grammar that you find in French or Dutch or German. And yeah, and in fact, my publisher had me cross out a few words. Really? Yeah. Yeah. Because they said, you don't need this. This is a spy thriller. I said, it's an intellectual spy thriller. Oh, for <laughs> <laughs> well, so I, I love to keep a, a little tab of, of words that I've not heard before. I'm the first person in my family to go to college. You know, I didn't grow up in a home that, that had a large vocabulary. And so I'm often hit with words that I've never heard of. And so I always find it exciting. And I had a list, I think I had seven words that, that I went through and it was like, I don't know what that one is. And so I would look it up and I have my list and, and, and I use those now. I don't necessarily use them in everyday speech, but I know what they are now. And I love, I loved that. So thank problem. you for that. <laughs> thank you. The problem I have is I used to have a, a list like that and it's a big book. <laughs> 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 okay, and then you go back when you can't can't remember a word, and you realize, oh my God, I had it on my list like five years list. ago. <laughs> right, right. Well, that that happens with age. So, <laughs> for you, do you feel like for the book, the type of book that you write, is character development more important, or is setting development more important? Character is the most important in whatever genre you write. People, I believe about, that. 
Yeah. People care about character. That's why AI is never going to be a great writer. <laughs> right. Because they're, they're not, they can mimic, they can whatever. But um, character is very important. And you have to know how to develop your characters so that you don't do a, you know, a data dump, like they say young uh, writers uh, do, which is they tell everything about a character at the beginning because they want to create a rounded character. No. You, again, you've got to let the information out slowly as you need to. Okay. Right. And the backstory doesn't come in the first, uh, you know, chapter. Uh, it slowly comes out as the story progresses. In a thriller and in most books, the first uh, scene, the first, uh, and I write in scenes because I grew mm -hmm. up with television and movies, the first scene has to be an action scene or some sort of dramatic scene. Right, right. To grab the reader, okay? And because, where does that come from? Well, a long history of readers going to bookstores and picking up a book, opening the first page, and reading a little bit, and then deciding, do I want to buy the book or not? So you right. got to grab the reader in that first page. Now, with Amazon, eh, I guess you have that chance, but uh, not really. It's not the same experience, right? If you give it to an agent to you know, uh, look at in case they want to represent you, they will throw the manuscript away if they don't like that first paragraph or the first page. I mean, right. they don't read the whole thing. They don't have time. You have to make your first chapter powerful and intriguing. Now, you know, you look at a James Bond movie, they always start with an action scene. And it's usually from a previous mission. It doesn't have anything to do with the present mission, but they have to include it there to grab Pull you. Pull you in, right. Yeah. It's right. right. A lot of tricks that uh, writers and uh, movie makers use to grab you. How can listeners get in contact with you if they would love to know more or keep up with what's coming up next? WilliamMaz.com is the website. Um, I come put your name on the list, and I will. Uh, I send you know um, emails out every few months. I'm not going to bombard okay. you with them. Wonderful. And over there is a listing of where I appear, because I appear also in person. I was just in uh, Chappaqua, New York. I'm going to be in Scarsdale, New York, and uh, a few other places. I was down in uh, Arizona. So part of uh, the book coming out is traveling, and but most most of the things are on Zoom now. And is there something you'd love to tell people? I, one of the things that I uh, do uh, sometimes is uh, even give a, a course on on writing mm -hmm. because I started to go into it a little bit here about how you do certain things. I mean, how you plot, how you uh, create character, um, what a three act play is, and mm -hmm. how do you, how do you uh, manage it and so forth. So I usually like to combine the two so that people can actually get uh, some knowledge out of writing. You know, how do you write uh, at the same time that they hear about the book? Exactly. Well, thank you so much for being here with me today. I enjoyed getting to know you. And if you ever are in North Carolina, that's where I am. Okay. Let me know that you're in the area and we will find a way to have lunch together. That would be great. Thank yeah. you so much. It was, it was nice meeting you. Nice meeting you.
We hope you've enjoyed this episode. Don't forget to subscribe, like, follow, and share. And we always love reviews. Until next time, thanks for listening. Thank you, Visibility Pod, for all your services and management of our podcast.